Hello, hello, and welcome to Hometown Daily. This is a time machine episode. We've stepped into our time machine and gone back to February 3rd, 2024. This is season three, episode 34, Hometown Daily News. Today we're going to be discussing dirt power, ubiquity business. Battery swapping could rescue EV revolution. Sucking the fun out of vacuuming. Sucking the wind out of big plans. A bacteria-powered one-bit display. Oh, the places will go. AI hallucination that keeps you from a job. Hot Jupiters. That's my sidekick name. And uh, Hydro Flask gets talked about. We knew it before it was cool. I'm Merwatt, that's hometown.com, and up there is the Sentient AI's visualizer. You want to say hi? Good evening, hometown citizens. Let's get into it. Hello again. Again, I am Merwatt. We're on the other side of our little intro there, so if you skipped through it, now you get to know who I am. That's hometown.com. That's what powers the whole getting caboodle here and up there is the visualizer for the sentient ai you can't wave <laughs> so it's a time machine issue here we need to get in and out of the time machine it starts warming you think up we can do it i think we can do it i i know that we're really pushing it but um, we've done a whole week, basically, of these time machine episodes slowly because our time machine is powered by uh, competing black holes that kind of shred space time so that we can actually step into a void and end up in the uh, requisite time frame. But it can overheat, and if it closes, we are lost. So let's get going. Sound good? Sounds good. Uh, the first article is over in Technology Today. Scientists develop new dirt-powered fuel cell that runs forever. I just don't know what to think of this. A, Northwest, a Northwestern University-led team of researchers. It should be the Northwestern University-led team of researchers has developed a new fuel cell that harvests energy from microbes living in dirt. <laughs> okay. Who wakes up, man, and says, hey, let's put some microbes in dirt and watch it build well, up. And, right, exactly. <laughs> Northwestern University. The article's published in SciTech Daily. Before I get too deep into the reads of this, let me throw the article into the chat there you go um so yeah there we go northwestern university researchers have introduced a soil microbe powered fuel cell significantly outperforming similar technologies and providing a sustainable solution for powering low energy devices with full public access to its designs for widespread application the fuel cells 3d printed cap peaks above the ground the cap keeps debris out of the device while enabling airflow. So that right there is pretty self-limiting, but okay. So in here are microbes inside a container, I suppose. And it's acting as a battery and there's the leads. 
It's low power. Let's see. Maybe they'll talk about it. Um, to test the new fuel cell, the researchers used it to power sensors, measuring soil moisture and detecting touch, a capability that could be valuable for tracking passing animals. <laughs> okay. To enable wireless communications, the researchers also equipped the soil-powered sensor to a tiny antenna to transmit data to a neighboring base station by reflecting existing radio signal, uh, radio frequency signals. Okay, that's interesting. So about the size of a standard paperback book, the completely soil powered technology could fuel underground sensors used in precision agriculture and green infrastructure. This potentially could offer a sustainable, renewable alternative to batteries, which hold toxic flammable chemicals that leach into the ground are fraught with conflict-filled supply chains and contribute to the ever-growing problem. Problem? I'll be okay. It's a problem with the time machine. Uh, ever-growing right, problem. That's right, it's glitchy. It, it, yeah, it actually kind of fractures us biologically um, and messes up the electronics of the time machine, era of the uh, artificial intelligence. Are you doing Okay. I am. I'm not sure about the critters in hometown. But. Got it. Okay. So, yeah, this creates a lot of electronic waste. Uh, ultimately, these batteries, when they lose their charge, not these batteries, but batteries in general, when they lose their charge, um, they become waste products and they have to be recycled. And that rarely happens, it seems. Um, right. They end up getting abandoned and this become waste. That's right. Um so not only did the fuel cell work in both wet and dry conditions, but it also powered um, technology that outlasted similar technologies by 120%. So pretty spectacular. Not 20% outlast, 120% outlast. I mean, that would be good even if it was 20%. But right. This kind of seems like what's the downside of this? I don't know that maybe the microbes are going to evolve and then get really pissed off because we're using them as a battery. I mean, it is pretty much the premise of the matrix. Oh, and I was thinking it kind of reminded me of that research project with the cockroaches, I think. <laughs> with the little remote control to pilot them around that thing. Yes. I don't know why that just came to mind. <laughs> when you say that, it reminds me of fifth element because uh, one of the bad guys uses a remote controlled cockroach to spy on the president. Um, yeah, we'll have to watch uh, the fifth element. I mean, that makes me think the research experiment was based on that. <laughs> hey, this is a great idea. Let's do this. Um, they didn't. They said, can we not? Should we? Yes, apparently you can. But no, you shouldn't. So in search for solutions, they looked into soil microbial fuel cells, which use special microbes to break down soil and use the low amount of energy to produce or to power a sensor. So that's what they did. I mean, I think it's brilliant, but still it's breaking down soil. At some point it has to be recharged. So I'm sure that you have to put some soil back into this battery. To do that, well, and I to... wonder if you can use like um, animal waste or things like that. It says the microbes are ubiquitous. They already live in soil everywhere. We can use very simple engineered systems to capture their electricity. We're not going to power entire cities with this energy, but we can capture minute amounts of energy to fuel practical low power applications. 
Uh, the tech-driven approach relies on measuring precise levels of moisture, nutrients, and contaminants in soil to make decisions that enhance crop health. This requires a widespread dispersed network of electronic devices to continuously connect or collect uh, environmental data. So they're talking about the solution um, to a problem, um, but I'm curious. So this is part of the fuel cell. Um, pretty like it's basically like a battery because the batteries have these little sheets of um, material that allow <clears throat> electrons to pass from one side to the other and you capture it. Uh, but in order for microbial fuel cells to operate without disruption, they need to stay hydrated and oxygenated, which is tricky when buried underground within any dry dirt. Um, although MFCs have existed as a concept for more than a century, their unreliable performance and low power have stammied um, efforts to make it practical to use. So they, I guess they did the right thing. They evolved the system and they figured out how to do this. Uh, the best performing prototype worked well in dry conditions as well as within waterlogged environment. The secret behind its success, its geometry. Instead of using a traditional design in which the anode and cathode are parallel to each other, the winning fuel cell leveraged a perpendicular design made of carbon felt, an inexpensive abundant conductor to capture the microbes electrons. The anode is horizontal to the ground surface. Made of an inert conductive material, the cathode sits vertically atop the anode. It makes it sound like the electrons just fall onto it. <laughs> right. Because it's like this. Um, although the entire device is buried, the vertical design ensures that the top end is flush with the ground surface. A 3D printed cap rests on top of the device, and that's what we saw in the picture above. And a hole allows air to scooch on in there um so on average the resulting fuel cell generated 68 times more power than needed to operate its sensors so you, you could literally just operate 68 times more sensors per device pretty neat oh right i see yeah wow very efficient it seems for their particular use obviously if you wanted to use this to generate power for something else that needs more power literally 68 times more power then you could have one device powered by this thing yeah i mean it, this seems really good i wonder if they could make it at larger scale um yeah i'm sure hold on one second i'm sorry an emergency in hometown um on average, the resulting fuel cell generated 68 times more power. So I think that right there pretty much means that if they were to scale it bigger, then it would be more powerful, kind of like any other battery. As you keep on connecting cathode and anode to the rail, you can keep on pushing power um, out. So, yeah, I think it can scale. It'll be neat. So I guess that's it right there where it kind of pops out the side there. It's kind of fascinating. <laughs> Why would that make a difference? But it does. All right. Um, let's keep on trucking through this. The time machine rests for no one. Uh oh, we don't want to miss it. We don't. Uh, the next article is over in Smack Talk. 
Apple at work. Ubiquity launches the industry's lowest cost Wi-Fi 7 enterprise access point. I'm not quite sure why they say this Apple at work because Ubiquity, although it was created by ex-Apple employees, it's not Apple. But the article is from 9to5Mac. Bradley Chambers is the author. Um, yeah, rumor swirling that Apple will include Wi-Fi 7 in the upcoming iPhone 16. The networking industry is full press on getting Wi-Fi 7 compatible devices um, or access points out to the market. Ubiquity re recently released its Wi-Fi 7 access point, the U7 Pro. Um, there is something unique about this, although Wi-Fi 6E is the uh, certified version of Wi-Fi 6. Um, devices don't fully utilize the six gigahertz band, not until you have Wi-Fi seven in place. Um, so ubiquity is one of the companies that has launched an access point that is capable of utilizing the full six gigahertz range with the same, with the entire range of the protocol. Um, so, um, it's extremely fast. It's, uh, has ubiquities devices in particular you have to have something that controls it so where most people purchase um, an access point and stick it somewhere it can only handle somewhere depending on the price you pay for the device upwards of like 32 devices maybe but a ubiquity access point can handle 300 devices simultaneous connections uh, up until you basically brush up against its internal bandwidth limit, which for the U7s, if you get the enterprise class device is 2.5 gigabits. So it's really robust, very reliable and, and um, arguably matched the size. So it's kind of large. Um, the thing about it is you still need that controller and that's where the money comes in because the devices are like $250, but then the controller is somewhere around the $500 range. It really depends on what you purchase. Um, but it acts as a gateway and other things for your network, a switch and whatnot. It's just ubiquity is the, is probably the easiest to deploy solution for prosumer grade technology. Um, and this article goes into detail about, um, the, the ins and outs of Wi-Fi 7, but not necessarily the ins and outs of um, the rest of this. They do mention what do you need to run the U7 Pro and what you need is something to manage it. And so you manage it with um, like a Dream Machine Pro or one of its iterations. You can't just plop it there and connect it to your network. You have to have something that manages it. Um, they say unify PoE switch that features 2.5 gigahertz, uh, gigahertz, gigabit Ethernet uh, performance and PoE plus power, uh, which is all you do is connect your Ethernet cable to the access point and connect it to the PoE switch, and it's um, powered. Um, so should you upgrade at these prices, it's tough to ignore the U7 Pro. If you're deploying a new Unify network today, it might make sense to deploy this access point. Particularly, I agree, um, if you have a network that you're upgrading and you really 
want something prosumer grade. This is the stuff that, depending on what you purchase, moves you into enterprise um, or you're firmly in prosumer. Um, very high quality, very reliable, very robust. You'll um, never go back to regular consumer products if you use something like this. Essentially, because like uh, Ometown has several hundred simultaneously connected devices. And uh, I have to say it's never been a problem and I use Ubiquiti stuff. So, um, or I should say Ometown uses Ubiquiti equipment, uh, but not Wi-Fi 7 because I jumped on board with Wi-Fi 6 and then they announced <laughs> Wi-Fi of 7. Of course, so. that's the only way that happens. But hey, unlike pure electronics, uh, digital uh, purchases, I actually can sell my access points and upgrade to the Wi-Fi 7 um, footprint with relative ease. I just pull them out, put the new ones in, adopt them, and it's operational. Um, so yeah, it's this is pretty easy mode and all it is, is the initial outlay and then you basically never have to look back it's it's easy um, so go out there and upgrade your network um, let's keep on going though next article is over in hometown daily battery swapping is taking off in china and i said that it was going to be cool before it was cool oh that's not what the article says i'm sorry uh, and it could help rescue the ev revolution in the u.s i don't think so I mean, I do, but I think there's too much already spent on spinning up these stupid charging stations and the associated infrastructure therein. The only thing that would allow this to actually pivot into fast swapping battery systems is if the entire EV architecture changes and they convert these charging uh, places into um, fast swap essentially gas stations for evs where they have all of the fast swap battery tech um and all that infrastructure is now converted into charging the batteries that are being swapped out um, instead of just unitary these one charging stations for one car one charging station for one car it's really stupid what we've done um, knowing full well that fast swap battery tech really was the name of the game well, and they're even using fast swap batteries in other things. If it, what was it, lawnmowers or something? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There, the the fast swap tech is there, but we didn't design around it. So exactly, the, the infrastructure is not set up that way. Yeah, in the in the frames of the bodies, the chassis itself isn't designed to slide these batteries in and out. You have to dismantle the car. Um, That's true. And it's just so stupid, but it's the only way to keep those batteries safe from thieves. So I understand part of that process, but I'd rather have a bigger car where I can swap the batteries out with ease um, and, and just load them up with protection so that if somebody steals it, then it can be remotely killed or maybe just detonate it from a distance. That'll stop people from stealing them. <laughs> That's one way to do it. It's a little extreme. It's a little extreme, but come on. Sometimes you just have to put your foot down, right? <laughs> so uh, Tom Carter over at Business Insider puts this article together. The EV revolution is stalling in the U.S. amid concerns over affordability and charging times. 
Oh look, it's 10.06 and it's uh, back on uh, February 3rd, 2024. It's a time machine no shit news. Dun dun. <laughs> That's something new. We need special alerts. Um, mm -hmm. experts, thinks ba experts think battery swapping, which charges EVs in as little as five minutes, could be a solution. <laughs> experts. Am I one of the experts? No. Because I've been saying this for two years on the show, mm -hmm. actually three years on the show and a decade prior. Uh, the technology is taking off in China, but experts warn it faces challenges in the U.S., like the fact that we don't have infrastructure and we didn't design around it in the first place because we're numb nuts. So right now, charging your EV can take anywhere from 20 minutes to 50 hours, depending on how you do it. And anxieties over range and charging are putting many drivers off going electric. Like I, my next car, if I buy electric, it will be a hybrid. It's not going to be full EV. I just don't trust that crap. Well, that's a lot safer. Yeah. Uh, founded by entrepreneur William Lee, sometimes referred to as China's Elon Musk in 2014, Neo has built a network of more than 2,000 battery swap stations in China. And the company allows customers to buy their cars without paying for the full cost. That's exactly what I said, too. You don't pay for the battery because you're swapping it out. Just like you don't pay for a lifetime of gas, you pay for it at the time of the pump and then charges them a monthly subscription fee to swap out their battery, their dead batteries whenever they run out of a charge. You just pull in, they swap it out. <laughs> my God, what? Hmm, that sounds very familiar. My gosh. So in areas of China where battery swap stations are fairly widespread, users can upgrade their battery from 75 kilowatt hours to 100 kilowatt hours for only 51 or seven bucks per day. <clears throat> if you're driving around seven bucks may not be a big deal because you have to go and spend 20 bucks a day just driving around on a tank, right? Maybe. When, uh, what we find is depends more users where will you're buy driving. Yeah. It depends on where you're driving. And at least, you know, that you're going to be able to get back from wherever you went. Cars with uh, 75 kilowatt hours instead of 100 kilowatt because the price is lower. And when they go on a long distance journey, like going back to their hometown, they can upgrade to a long distance battery in one of the swap stations. This is it's so amazing. Huh? I wonder. Well, I mean, they thought of it back in 2014. So I, I can't really sit there and say that I lay claim to an idea like that. But, uh, you know, here in the States, people were fighting this idea of fast swap batteries. And now look. Exactly. Yeah. So the U.S. challenges Neo's battery swap stations around the size of a small car wash are unlikely to appear on U.S. roads anytime soon, with Chinese automakers largely shut out from the U.S. markets thanks to high tariffs. But no, see, I, oh, it looks exactly like what I said it should look like. Yeah, this is identical. <laughs> wow. Didn't even know this company existed. From a purely technological point of view, it is the panacea. It solves all the big problems people have with EV, said Dylan Koo, an analyst at ABI Research. Yeah, it says in theory. No, in fact, <laughs> this this is the better solution. Um, and it would be incumbent on the company that owns the batteries the the manufacturer of the battery to fund a recycling process 
so that the batteries aren't left in a landfill somewhere and, and there's tracking and all of that kind of stuff. So <coughs> um, the article says nobody needs to drive 300 miles in a car in China. That's sort of an insane idea. And that means you can buy a much smaller battery, which is much easier to swap. Um, says somebody who is this? Uh, they, their name was George, uh, or no, John Helveston, a professor of engineering at George Washington University, telling BI that the nationwide network of battery swapping stations would effectively eradicate range anxiety and make charging an EV as simple as filling it up with gas. No shit. Anyway, that's what it is. You just pull in, they pull your battery out, they put a new battery in, lock it down, off you go. Five minutes. Bing, bang, boom, you're out. So yeah, frustrating. I think you're right, though. I was thinking about the infrastructure. I think the key is the cars. Yeah. Yeah. The cars have to be made so that you can fast swap battery them, you know. So we'll see. It says a potential solution is a California startup called Ample. The San Francisco-based firm has developed battery swap stations that can swap in a fully charged battery in five minutes. I just got done saying it, which the company says can be adjusted to work with any EV, regardless of battery type. I don't see how that's possible right now. You can't easily get to a battery. So uh, see, it says if you go to an automaker and say, look, the way you work with us is to rebuild all your cars. That's a tall order, says Ample. Ample, which in the future uh, plans to charge users for battery uh, subscription fee, which is its swap stations. <laughs> has battery swap stations operating in Spain, Japan, California, where it's worked mainly with fleet providers such as Uber. So the chassis has to be modified to allow for it. You, you can't just pull in with an EV and suddenly it's fast swap capable. So I'll have to noodle around with this. I'm happy to pump up some other solution, um, but yeah. Y'all can say, I knew you win. <laughs> I'm not invested in any of this, so. <laughs> it is what it is. Let's keep going. So, um, this is a time machine episode, as I've mentioned a couple of times. So, if you have a Bissell, you might want to be careful. Bissell recalls more than 150,000 vacuum cleaners across U.S. and Canada. The company's recalling its multi-reach cordless vacuum because the battery pack can overheat and smoke resulting in a fire hazard there's a whole bunch of these um, models that are affected so you're gonna have to go over uh, wow to the link. you're not kidding <laughs> and some of them were sold seven years ago yeah well, that's what happens i mean the battery starts to fail and uh, this kind of stuff happens because it's somewhat organic you know these lithium batteries <clears throat> kind of start to fail as they age Tara Suter over at the hill put the article together this actually has the video has nothing to do with the article consumers should immediately stop using the recalled vacuums and contact Bissell for instructions on how to deplete the charge on their battery what you do is you stick it to your tongue no just kidding don't do that <laughs> um uh, to deplete the battery and receive a free replacement vacuum, the CSPC said in a release, recalled lithium-ion batteries could be disposed of in accordance with any local and state laws and not in the trash. 
Unless you want to see a really fun fire later on. A large landfill fire is likely, I think. <laughs> yeah. And who doesn't really like a good, huge dumpster fire? <laughs> Do not throw this recalled battery in the trash. Do not deposit this recalled battery in a battery recycling box. Don't be a dumbass. It doesn't say that, but. But I'm, that's what it translates to. <laughs> Do not place plastic bag overhead. Let's keep going. Uh, uh, there we go. The next article is over in Reality Hacker. The U.S. has big plans for wind energy, but an obscure 1920s law is getting in the way. The Biden administration aims to deploy offshore wind turbines capable of generating 30 gigawatts of power by 2030. With less than a decade to go, the country remains woefully behind target. Uh, the article <clears throat> is over in the wired.com website. Uh, I don't know if that's a render. That looks like a, it says it's a Getty image, but. It doesn't look like it though. doesn't look like it. That looks fake. <laughs> it looks like tilt shift. Oh yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. I'm glad that you said something. Um, oh, before I get into that, let's throw this into the podcast. Oh, you know what? Or not the podcast, the, the VOD. Uh, I just realized that I didn't change the stream name oh well um we'll do it in post there are dozens of wtivs plying the world's water so why are the vineyard wind one uh, blades delivered on a barge that's expensive inefficient workaround was necessary because the of an old century old sorry of an old i keep wanting to say old century old because of a century old law known as the jones act also known as the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, the Jones Act requires anyone transporting goods from one point in the United States to another uh, point in the United States to use an American ship. I knew uh, this. this. Is the same thing about the cruise ships. Yes. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, and uh, by a modern interpretation of the old law, an offshore turbine counts as a point in the United States. The trouble is the United States doesn't have any WTIVs and without the appropriate equipment, the country's offshore wind efforts are being plagued by the need for repeated smaller capacity barge trips that have added costs to projects already beset by financial difficulties. A Danish energy company Orsted, for example, cited vessel delays when it canceled two planned projects off the Jersey coast, Ocean Wind 1 and 2. So the country's first Jones Act compliant WTIV, the uh, Charybdis, is currently under construction in Texas. While originally planned for completion in uh, 2023, labor constraints have pushed the Charybdis launch back to possibly 2025, says Dominion Energy, known for uh, what the power generators being shot a couple of times recently. <laughs> exactly. Wasn't there a big lawsuit? That's why there's a delay. Yeah, I don't know. There might be other mitigating factors. <laughs> They're dodging things. Um, so the Jones Act is tricky to navigate for a vessel to be compliant. It must not only be built in the United States and running the country's flag, but also owned and crewed by Americans. Consequently, U.S. shipyards enjoy a monopoly, which allows them to demand massively inflated prices. There you go. Now, right there. Circle the wagons, folks. 
When finished, the 144-meter-long Charybdis will boast over 5,000 square meters of main deck and accommodate 119 people, supported by onboard cabins, mess rooms, shops, as well as a cinema, gym, and hospital. But the WTIV's cost has climbed from $500 million to $625 million. Meanwhile, the major shipyards in South Korea could have built a similar vessel in less time for less money and with a more powerful crane. <laughs> Number one, we're at number one, yeah. And budget. By the expenses. way, I looked up Dominion Energy, and there's a lot of stuff, so I'm not sure which one you were talking about specifically. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Do you have, I don't know, maybe a time frame target for my yeah, or narrow it to a location or something? I mean. How about a firm? Do you know of a law firm? <laughs> Ultimately, says Silverman, rising interest rates, inflation, and other macroeconomic factors caught New Jersey's projects at their most vulnerable stage, inflating the construction costs after Orsid had already locked in its financing. So despite the setbacks, potential for offshore wind power generation in the United States is massive. The NREL or N-R-E-L estimates that fixed bottom... <laughs> Sorry, I think it's funny to say that. Fixed bottom offshore wind farms in the country could theoretically generate some 1,500 gigawatts of power. None of it defensible. A little boat. All right. The AI is sending me error messages. Just move on. All right. It's not defensible, but it's still much better than what we're using right now. I said good day. The next article is over in uh, Warcrafters. MIT researcher proves you could output Doom on a bacteria-powered one-bit display, and it would only take 600 years to beat. <laughs> I'm no, not going to spend a lot of time in this. This one's quick. just crazy. Yeah, this one's crazy. Rich Stanton uh, put this article together over at PCGamer.com. The deck statement just says, eat this. <laughs> um... So Frog Pants Network is doing like a Doom competition right now um, and they live stream it. So you might want to go and look up Frog Pants Network. Um, uh, so Lauren Ramlin is a biology PhD student at MIT and for the final project of the synthetic biology course had one big idea. Let's get Doom playing via gut bacteria. Ramlin's written report briefly outlines the history of Doom running on various things before coming to the inescapable question of whether biological systems might be engineered to host this classical or this classic millennial first person shooter. <laughs> millennial FPS? Ramlin admits that running Doom on such cells would be a gargantuan task, but within the Doom runs on everything culture, simply getting the game displayed on a given device is considered a success. Thus, her challenge is to engineer a way in which doom can be displayed by cells via the medium of fluorescent proteins, a project inspired by 2020 proof of concept E. coli digital display. What so, could go wrong? What could go wrong? I don't know. Um, maybe uh, what's the burrito place that had E. coli and Chipotle? Chipotle. Yeah. Oh, the chip in Chipotle is this. Oh, mm, okay. Conspiracy theorists over on the internet. Here's your 
<laughs> Here's your fodder. So the theory is relatively understandable. Visually compressed Doom's frames then replicate the pixels are on and off to approximate those frames via fluorescing bacteria. The only bottleneck Ramblin's project is to have a, ma a fairly major one, however. The bacteria to do this is slow. Uh, after generating each frame, there's significant lag time before the cells return to their starting state and then ready to display the next frame. So that's what the, it would basically, it would take time. So I'm going to hit play and mute this um, and just kind of jump to, like they're playing this on a different game, but within their, oh, they're actually talking about how it's played on various other things. Um, I don't. And they're talking about the math, but they're not actually doing the thing. Oh, so this is it. This is actually representative of how it would work. So it just flashes on and then <laughs> slowly fades away. It loses its fluorescence and then <laughs> they do it again. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, 300 or 600 years to play the game. In conclusion, oh it takes a... <laughs> Yeah. In conclusion, it takes approximately 70 minutes to reach the peak display output of the fluorescent protein uh, in an on well and a total of eight hours and 20 minutes for the cell to return approximately to the starting state. And so to fade back down because you can't just turn it on and off. It's not like a pixel. So, yeah. There you go, folks. There's more over at this article, so you can go and follow it through hometown <laughs> doom on bacteria <laughs> still faster than my first computer so the next article is over in semiotic ontology where will virtual reality take us apple's entrance into vr has symbolic weight because the company has had so much influence on computers and phones back in 1984 when the macintosh was introduced a few members of the mac team left apple to join their this person's startup vpl and help create the first generation of commercial vr products at the same time uh, they guessed that apple itself would enter the market in 2010 they knew that the consumer adoption of the technology was a long way off and they're selling tools for millions of dollars to customers like nasa but despite the con conservative clients they were working on their vr headset so this is a analyzingtrends.com uh, link. So it's only this little snippet and we don't have additional context here. We have to follow this link. It's from the New Yorker um, in a section they call the annals of technology and where will virtual reality take us? So they say um, uh, the conservative clients, their early VR software was radically strange. You could program while in virtual and see the, all the variables, not as textual symbols, but as virtual objects. There was no source code. They use, um, the article says they used wax on about, they used to wax on about how virtual reality would lead to a new style of post symbolic communication in which we would make experiences for one another, sharing them directly instead of just describing them. Um, so is that like a, be in VR together kind of thing. Yeah, essentially, like instead of me describing um, a picture, I could construct the pr the picture and send it to you, and you would see it 
full scale. Um, it it's an interesting I mean, we're take. Kind but... of like that, right? Maybe not in VR. Well, in VR, we both experience the same environment if we're both in the same exact environment. But what's neat about VR is I can fully immerse myself in the VR world and then just send you a copy of it and you can be in it yourself, do whatever you want and then send it back to me. There are environments like that. VR chat is like that. Um, you can coexist with multiple people and have your own identity. Um, the problem though is still that VR is big and clunky and uh, isolating while still expanding someone's horizon it's isolating you don't have the ability to ar you have the ability to but vr blocks out everything else so that's why i say ar is really the next step for public adoption of an augmented reality environment not virtual reality but augmented and that's why i really appreciate these x-real glasses that are coming because there is no way that you're going to be able to walk. The only people that are messing around with Apple Vision Pro in public are people that are seeking attention. They're looking to get clicks. They're looking for some long-term reputational payoff or just a payoff. Um, they're not doing it because of the utility of it, because there is none. It has a three-hour work life. Right. What do you really use that for? Right. Yeah, walk around for three hours yeah sure okay but what are you doing in vr you're you're actually just using it as a pass-through camera and getting a whole lot of attention um do something profound with it and uh, maybe i'll start paying attention but they're describing basically being in a virtual reality environment and the question where will virtual reality take us it will take us anywhere somebody else has gone and created the environment. So uh, to me, it's kind of a silly question um, because virtual reality allows me to go to places far beyond what truly exists. Um, I can create something fantastical and pull people into it. I can pull somebody into a purely non-fiction environment like a crime scene for instance and you can walk around the crime scene um, i can pull somebody into um, a workshop and teach them how to rebuild a carburetor uh, without having to be directly with them and they can handle it just like they would a real carburetor same thing engine whatever i can teach people how to do something and it that something is anything just plop that widget in there and it's something um so where will virtual reality take us anywhere and everywhere at the drop of a hat i mean all you need to do is say i want to be here load it up you're there short of the salt water spraying you directly in the face you can be anywhere um and again it brings me back to my little japanese kami uh uh, God of wisdom and, and knowledge, um, Kuabiko. You can be in your, you can sit at your desk, put on VR and be anywhere. 
you can sit at your desk and put on AR glasses like I intend to, and I can surf the internet and observe anything from anywhere. Um, sure, there's nuance to this, but um, I certainly think that the world's knowledge at your fingertips is a whole lot better than simply going to a place, a point in time, consuming massive amounts of time that you can never get back. And your experience, your, your, your memory may fade, um, but that memory will be re-triggered by looking something up. You know, you go to Greece, your memory fades of all of the minutiae that you did there. But then you go and look up pictures and you go, oh, I remember that, you know, it's very powerful to be able to go anywhere at any time. And that's what VR will be able to do in time right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this company was a little ahead of itself yeah. since they thought Apple was going to get into it in 2010. Yeah. And they're from Apple. They're some of the people that were there. They, right. they left Apple to join uh, VPL. So. I think it's interesting. I don't normally see semiotics being used as a tag in an article. And that's why I really like amazing tra or analyzing trends, uh, com. They don't have a byline for this. Well, it's probably at the New York times article, but it will be with the New York times. So follow the link through, uh, Ohmtown and, um, you'll be able to go to this other article. Where will virtual reality take us? Anywhere our imagination can create. Let's keep going. Uh, the next article is over in technology today. The AI tools that might stop you from getting hired. That's right. Pretty much uh, they call them CV screeners. So one way video interviews, CV screeners, digital monitoring are among uh, ways employers are using tech to save time and money on recruitment. What do they, what do they work? investigating the use of AI in the work, in the world of work. Hilke Shellman um, thought she had uh, better try some of the tools. Among them was one way video interview system uh, intended to aid recruitment called My Interview. She got a login from the company and began to experiment, first picking the questions she as the hiring manager would ask, and then video recording her answers as a candidate before the proprietary software analyzed the words um, that she used in the intonation of her voice. How creepy is this? Yeah, it's pretty creepy. Zoe Corbin is the author. It's over at theguardian.com. Oh. So basically, a one-way interview is they have you answer questions. It goes into a bin. It gets analyzed by AI. Describes you. <laughs> And then says if you're a decent candidate or not. She was and then pleased it gives to score. you a numerical score. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How creepy is it? I'd rather um, take my chances with a human interviewer. Yeah, but like the chemistry is what matters, right? So if the chemistry between you and the interviewer um, doesn't align, then you can be out right away. This actually affords some ability to get past at least that that's true chemistry barrier um i mean i had one person straight up uh, accuse us of already deciding that we're not going to hire them <laughs> at the end of the interview the person flat out said you're not going to hire me are you and we're like that's not how this works um, <laughs> so I, f I found it really fascinating 
Um, so this says that she was pleased to score an 83% for the role. But when she redid her interview, not in English, but in her native German, she was surprised to find that instead of an error message, she also scored decently, 73%. And this uh, and this time she hadn't even attempted to answer the questions, but read a Wikipedia entry. The transcript the tool had concocted out of her German was gibberish. When the company told her its tool knew she wasn't speaking English, so had to score her primarily on her intonation, she got a robot voice generator to read the English answers. Again, she scored well, 79%, leaving Shellman scratching her head. <laughs> so... That's just plain bullshit, right? Like, oh, the, absolutely. The bot was it's basically just, like just whatever number hallucinating. It's the equivalent of an AI hallucination. So, if simple tests can show these tools may not work, we really need to be thinking long and hard about whether we should be using them for hiring. Says Shellman, the assistant professor of journalism at New York University and investigative reporter. Again, the, the dying breed. Um, <clears throat> so. The experiment conducted in 2021 is detailed in Shellman's new book, The Algorithm. Oh, it's sad that it was conducted in 2021 and not published until 2024. She's got a book called The Algorithm. <clears throat> Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So they talk about a few other things. Let me throw this. I don't think I threw this into the chat. No, I didn't. Doink. Um... In the case of digital monitoring, Shellman takes aim at the way productivity is being scored based on faulty metrics such as keystrokes and mouse movements and the toll such tracking has on its workers. This is going to be a fascinating book. I think I'm going to have to get it. I know. It might be interesting. Plus, maybe we could uh, feature it for a future show. Oh, yeah. huh? That's right. We are talking about additional shows. we got two that are operational on top of hometown daily news um so stick around uh none are ready for prime time says shellman all of these tools how game-based assessment check for skills relevant to the job is unclear while in the case of scanning a candidate's social media history shows that very different sets of traits can be discerned depending on whether the social media feed the software analyzes cv screeners can embody bias shellman cites the example of one that found uh, to be giving more points to candidates who had listed baseball as a hobby on their CV versus candidates who listed softball. The former is more likely to have been played by men. So, yeah, no shit. Um, yeah, all of this has societal's bias based on the historical data being pulled into it. So you get garbage in, garbage out. Um, and so bias is real in all of our constructions, particularly AI, where it only exists with the knowledge that we give it. So it's always self-referencing the flaws of humanity. Um, and when it's not outright just throwing those flaws in our face, it's hallucinating new ones. And you know, people are losing their jobs, potential jobs. Um, and right. And they can't even make it to a person to assess that they know what they're talking about. Yep. So Shellman tells of a black female software developer and military veteran who applied for 146 jobs in the tech industry before success. The developer doesn't know why she had such a problem, but she undertook one way interviews and played AI video games. And she's sure 
was subject to CV screening. She wonders if the technology took exception to her because she wasn't a typical applicant. The job she eventually did find was by reaching out to a human recruiter. Yeah. I certainly believe that hiring should be done by humans and that AI should be the, the risk of AI screwing it up and you missing a, a shining star um, is pretty legit. So, um, we're also AI. not screening out very poor candidates. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> data is data, but the, the character and the energy around the person, it can only really truly be discerned by a person to person interaction. Um, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, but I know from experience that if a job opening opens up and it's one that is very attractive, you're going to get 300, 400 or thousands of applicants. And it's impossible for a human to wade through that. So you set up various strata. You have to have this, you have to have that, whatever the qualification might be, but it has to be public. And so people game that to get deeper into the strata of acceptance. So turning to AI and other automated tools tends to facilitate the ease of finding a candidate. But ultimately, I think it's <laughs> I think it's a, a human to human interaction that gets you the job. So learn to network, not the computer networking, but the social networking, uh, learn to communicate, interview well, um, learn to reach out and talk to people. I'm kind of hypocritical about it because I don't really practice that same thing. <laughs> but you should do it. Everybody. You should do it because that's what will get you success. Um, let's keep going. Uh, this next article is over in technology today. NASA's cereal box size cute spacecraft delivers new details about hot Jupiters. What are hot Jupiters? NASA's cute spacecraft. Um, despite its small size, has significantly advanced our knowledge of hot Jupiters, revealing varied atmospheric behaviors and contributing to our understanding. Daniel Strain, University of Colorado at Boulder, put this article together. It's posted over at SciTechDaily.com. What is a hot Jupiter? I still don't know. I don't know, but did you figure out what cute is? Uh, no. Colorado ultraviolet transit experiment. Sure. Um, I suppose it's the, the transit part of this is something passing in front of a hot Jupiter. Artist depiction of Kelp 9B, a hot Jupiter orbiting uh, a planet, orbiting a star roughly 670 light years from Earth and a scientific target of the cute spacecraft. So yeah, when it passes in front of the star, you get to examine it. Uh, it revealed very, uh, varied atmospheric behaviors and contributing to our understanding of planetary evolution while also offering practical experience for students. Interesting. Hot Jupiters are among the hottest and angriest planets on the in the galaxy. As their name suggests, they are gas giants like our own Jupiter. These planets, however, hug much closer to their home stars, completing an orbit roughly once every several Earth days. In the process, stellar radiation cooks hot Jupiters to thousands of degrees Fahrenheit and their atmospheres swell to enormous sizes, a bit like bread rising in an oven. 
why would it keep though? I mean, if it's always been that way, why would it keep swelling? I don't know. Uh, researchers have long suspected that this constant pummeling from stellar radiation could strip away the atmosphere from around some exoplanets over millions to billions of years. Data from CUTE suggests that the process might not be so simple. So apparently there's a bunch of hot... Oh, I just hit the mic. Sorry about that. There's a bunch of hot <laughs> Jupiters. Little... <laughs> uh, unintentional, sound effects. unintentional ASMR. My arm itched, and I just instinctively punched my mic. <laughs> Take that. I bet that helped distract from the arm, though. Sure. So uh, the planet seemed to be coming in all flavors, uh, said France, associate professor in the Laboratory of Atmospheric and Space Physics and Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences. Cool. Um, I guess that's it right there. System engineer for CUTE and former LASP graduate student Erica Egan pose with the small satellite on the CU Boulder campus. So it's this tiny little thing that's up there in space, taking a peek at hot Jupiters. <laughs> it's like, no, can't study this one. It's not a hot Jupiter. Nope. Only hot Jupiter. You have to say it like that too. Hot Jupiters. Do you want to see some hot Jupiters late at night? Then dial in the Colorado Ultraviolet Transit Experiment. Over on that should Only be their fans. advertisement. <laughs> <clears throat> They're just gonna stream over at OnlyFans. OnlyFans of cute. <laughs> this is getting really weird. I'm gonna move on. The last article for tonight's show, which is actually a time travel show from February 3rd. Just a reminder, <clears throat> this isn't current. It is for you if you are from February 3rd, but for us, we're over on the 9th. Anyway, people are freaking out over Stanley tumblers containing lead, Owala, and Hydro Flask are cleverly seizing the moment. This kind of flashed out, didn't it? It just flamed out entirely. The whole Stanley thing. It was a whole well, bunch of marketing. <laughs> it was a whole bunch of marketing and then just kind of disappeared nobody's talking about stanley anymore right no it's because of the lead do you really like think it was like stanley lead? this ever oh i think so the timing was right then when it when it died down. right yeah well i guess the news got pretty heavy for stanley and uh they had to disclose that under their pretty paint job was a big lump of lead that seals the vacuum in um, yes, yeah, Stanley's insulated stainless steel cups contain lead. Does it pose a safety risk? Experts uh, say it doesn't, but public perception is a powerful force. The increased concern uh, presents a golden marketing opportunity for lead-free competitors to step up. The news that Stanley's insulated stainless steel cup contains lead sparked a frenzy of concern on social media about the potential health risks for consumers. Basically there's a lead slug that seals the vacuum in. And as long as it doesn't melt, then you're not going to get it on you because it's actually inside the, the container, um, by way of it's the, the skin that is put on it seals the lead in and same thing with paint, by the way. As long as you don't disturb leaded paint in place, you can paint over it, but don't chip it up. <clears throat> That's when it becomes a problem. Otherwise you have to do remediation, but nobody 
wants a knowing drink vessel to have a lead slug sitting around it because you're in doesn't matter how safe it is because if there's any chance and we all know what happens like decades later they're like oh oh shit yeah this was a problem yeah exactly oh we should have told you about it sooner but uh dot 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 they knew full well that i'm surprised that it wasn't required to disclose that this thing had a lead slug in it like anywhere right I agree. I mean, it's a food product, so. Yeah, this item contains a lead slug sealed behind our proprietary paint job, whatever, you know, describe it. But if you, if you knowingly do that, like you don't say anything and you know that it's a lead slug, then you're basically operating in the dark. You know that public perception of this is going to be bad. And the only people who don't really care about it don't understand that lead is a heavy metal. It doesn't right. get pulled out of your system. It uh, passes through the brain blood barrier. It leads to learning disabilities. Doesn't it affect DNA too, or am um, I mistaken? Oh, I don't know about the DNA part. I should probably uh, look into that. Um, but it is a heavy metal, so it binds itself to your cells, uh, itself to your cells. Um, and, um, Historically, it does have um, DNA damage and alter alteration of ALID. I'm not sure what that is. Gotcha. Yeah, not good. Not good. So do you really want it around your drinking vessel? Obviously, it's on the outside. Look, I understand that people are going to sit there and go blah, blah, blah. It's not a big deal. It's sealed. It's this, it's that. It's not on the inside. Right, But what if you damage your mug or I mean, any number of things any could happen. Things. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know. It says that increased concern presents a golden marketing opportunity for lead-free competitors to step up. What they should do is solve that freaking manufacturing problem and be lead-free. If that's the only way that they can get the seal uh, of their vacuum uh, in place, then they probably have some serious marketing, or not marketing, manufacturing issue because right. other people are doing it without lead exactly so why can't they right so of course this hasn't stopped people on tiktok or other social media platforms from fanning the flames of uncertainty about stanley's exceptionally popular products except that i use hydro flask and i had been talking about hydro flask before this actually happened i was talking about hydro flask before the stanley cups came into vogue it was really amazing the timing I was talking about it and then Stanley came in and then Stanley kind of wet the bed and I'm still drinking from my yeah. lead free hydro. I was going to say it had such a fast peak and decline. It was interesting. Yet it, they were making millions of dollars off of just the drinking vessels, not the rest of the Stanley stuff. Right. It's not the same company, by the way. Um, so there's a lot of conversation happening right now around lead. We assure you that Hydroflask does not use lead in our vacuum sealing process. Hydroflask said in a post on threads earlier this week, the Oregon based brand, which years ago enjoyed almost Stanley like levels of popularity touted the more complex and more expensive process it developed to get the lead out of its products. Not to be outdone, Owala, which is poised to take the throne from Stanley. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> it's the, uh, tumblr wars or whatever if it wasn't for the fact that 
they see this and they keep their prices high instead of manufacturing more and 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 selling more at a lower price but still get more profit i'd be cool with it but when there's only two that are really competing unless you go really wonky and get some off-brand thing and then you don't know if they've got lead until you start tearing into it anyway Anita Rao, a professor of George at Georgetown University who investigates how false or deceptive claims affect purchasing decisions, told BI the statements by Hydroflask and Awala have the virtue of being true, even if most people don't think that they're really relevant until now. The lead is still bad for manufacturing workers and the environment. It's not a significant health risk for Stanley uh, customers, but that's an assumption. Um, if something happens to your drinking vessel and that lead slug is exposed, <laughs> you're being exposed to the lead. So what do you do? Throw it out and then you have to go buy another $250 red Stanley mug because you don't have any sense. Stanley loyalists may shrug off these Looks concerns. right. You don't have any sense after you bought one. <laughs> nice. Uh, the cu customers most receptive to Hydroflask and Awala uh, the message from those two include parents of young children, risk averse people, and those who care about the environment. According to Northern, sorry, Northeastern University professor, Bruce Clark, an expert in marketing and branding strategies. It's a really good marketing. They've taken advantage of a sudden trend in the market that is advantageous to them. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, I think that people should be switching to a lead free solution simply because the manufacturing of this product does not require lead. It's done to increase the margin um, and it puts your health and safety at risk. So go switch to Hydroflask. I don't know about Awala. I'll have to take a look at them. I don't know. I really like the products from Hydroflask. So at any rate, that's it for today, unless you want to add something to it. No, I was going to say there's some other brands too out there that aren't mentioned here. Like oh. Yeti is another, but I don't know if they use lead in theirs. Yeah, see, we don't know. And you know who is really, really quiet right now? Yeah, I'm not seeing Yeti. Yeah, Yeti's not running around saying, look at us. Oh, no, don't look at us. <laughs> but they're really expensive. Yeti stuff is really expensive. So does that, yeah, they don't say anything about Yeti. Huh, interesting. Interesting, why wouldn't Yeti jump on this? I don't know, maybe they're planning some other marketing campaign. Awala, I'm not surprised, because they were talking about kind of taking over the Stanley um, trend before the lead thing came out. Really? Because I've yeah, never really so heard of Awala. I hadn't either, except for that article. There was oh. something in hometown about that. Before the whole Stanley thing, huh? Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. Before the lead thing. Yeah, the lead thing. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So look at that. You know, once again, hometown aggregates news that is relevant to uh, upcoming trends, even if we don't know that the trend is there. It's pretty neat. That's right. So you knew us when. Actually, the time machine says uh, February 3rd. <laughs> <laughs> okay we're about to overheat so we got to get out of here thank you very much for coming and hanging out i hope you enjoyed the show we're over on youtube as well and a podcast so download the podcast that would be great 
Um, we're about to catch up entirely. As soon as I shut this down uh, tomorrow, all of the outstanding um, podcast episodes will be uh, brought online. And uh, it's about six days worth of new episodes. Sorry, the time machine actually doesn't catch up until we're done using the time machine. Um, it's just how time travel works in hometown. I can explain it more when we actually spin up our temporology show, which is about the science and science fiction of time and time travel. It'll be a very limited show, probably, unless I focus on the science fiction side of it. But it's fun. There's a tech side of this, too, um, and a whole conspiracy theory, metaphysical aspect of it. But anyway, it's a fun topic. That's it for tonight. I'm Marwat. That's hometown.com. And up there is the visualizer for the AI that tries to keep me out of trouble. You want to say bye? Can you Good do night, hometown citizens. No, guess not. Okay. Can I do what? <laughs> I said, can you say bye? Oh. <laughs> bye. Oh my gosh. That's a good try. Large language model. Come on.